I'm going to try this thing one more time because it's really. It's really important to the people who are watching online to have the added volume, if at all possible. I want to use just a minute or two to talk about where we have been so far. Paul began his letter in a very personal way. And I shared with you how the personal and possessive pronouns, I, me, my, occur more than 20 times in just the first 17 verses of the book of Romans. It seems to be evident that Paul is anxious from the very start to establish a very close relationship with his readers. And after identifying himself as a servant and as an apostle, Paul gets right into a discussion of the good news. And he gives basically a six-point analysis of the gospel to which he has been set apart. The origin of the gospel is God. He was set apart for the gospel of God. A little bit unusual way to say that. Only used a couple of times in the whole Bible, both of which are in Romans. Um, The attestation of the gospel uh, is that it is Scripture. It is something that was promised through the prophets. The substance of it is Jesus Christ. It's concerning His Son, He said. The scope is that it's for all nations. The purpose is so that we can bring about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Those that were at the class heard Jim uh, talk about one of his favorite uh, theologians of times past, and it was none other than Luther. And Luther was really concerned about the problems that went too far with the indulgences and all. And so he really emphasized that we were saved by grace. But he went so far in that direction that he didn't even want the letter of James included in the canon in the Bible. He called it the straw gospel. And in his own version, in his own translation that he did into German, he placed it at the very end after Revelation. Because it talks about, you show me your faith apart from what you're doing, and I'll show you by what I do my faith. Words of James. It's obedience. Obedience. I am sorry if you believe otherwise. But you cannot be saved just by what you know in your head. James said, you believe there is one God? Good. The demons even believe that and shudder in fear. Who correctly identified Jesus most often as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Son of David in the book of Mark? The demons. They knew who Jesus was. They knew He was the Son of God. They knew He was the Savior. They knew that He was going to come and bring judgment. One of the demons even said, Are you coming to 
torment us before the time? There is the obedience that's required of faith. And of course the goal of the gospel is to honor Christ's name. It's for the sake of His name. And Paul wanted them to know his personal feelings about the gospel. So in verse 16 and 17, he gives that great thematic statement. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul knew that the message of the cross was foolishness to some. It was a stumbling block to others because it undermined self-righteousness. It undermined self-indulgence. So whenever the gospel is faithfully preached, it does arouse opposition, often contempt, sometimes even ridicule. So as we begin to examine the context uh, leading up to our text for today, you'll notice that after his extended introduction of himself and his statement that he's not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, he immediately goes into a discussion of the blatant sinfulness of humanity. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. One of the most irresponsible things that a doctor could ever do would be to acquiesce to a patient's inaccurate self-diagnosis. I don't know about you, but I personally do not believe that they should have commercials on TV for medications that you have to have a prescription for. Because all it does is convince somebody, oh, I've got those symptoms, and then they go and bug their doctor until they can get that one they saw on TV. Our Christian duty is through prayer, through teaching, to bring people to accept a true diagnosis of their condition in the sight of God. We are not to condone sinful lifestyles. But we're not to condemn either. I know this is my play on three words that begin with the same first letter. and I've been using these three like this for many, many years now. We're not to condone. We're not to condemn. But we are called to confront. Otherwise... How will they ever be able to respond to the gospel if they don't understand that what they are doing is wrong? I'm going to be very honest with you. I am not a Joel Olstein fan. Okay? Years ago, I watched. At first, I thought, yeah, this is pretty good, pretty uplifting. But then I started realizing there's something missing. And I watched a Larry King interview of Joe Alstein. And Larry King said, you know, I went back and watched several of your services before this interview, and you never once mentioned sin. 
You never once mentioned judgment. And Joel Olstein said, no, no, those are negatives. Those just get people down. I stress the positive. Well, let me tell you something. Unless we understand the diagnosis, we cannot get any help. And so Paul demonstrates the universality of sin and guilt that divides the human race into several different groups of people. And in each case, the procedure that he uses is identical. He begins by reminding each group of their knowledge of God and His goodness. He then confronts them with the uncomfortable fact that they have not lived up to their knowledge. Instead, they've deliberately suppressed it, even contradicted it. And they continue to live in unrighteousness. And therefore, they are guilty. Inexcusably guilty before God. Nobody can can claim innocence because nobody can plead ignorance. And in that first section, verses 18 to 32, he portrays a very depraved Gentile society in its idolatry, its immorality, and its antisocial behavior. A diagnosis that we are all too familiar with in our society today. The second group that we discussed in terms and we discussed it in terms of their hypocritical righteousness chapter 2 verses 1 to 16 I referred to them as critical moralizers whether they were Gentiles or Jews they were people who professed very high ethical standards and that's good but they go on to apply them to everybody else but just not to themselves And the main difference between this group and the first group is that while the first group do things they know to be wrong and approve of others who do them, which is at least consistent, the second group do what they know to be wrong and they condemn others who do them, which is hypocritical. And a major complaint of the unchurched today is that Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing, but look at the way they live. That brings us to the third group. The self-confident. The self-righteous. And it began in chapter 2, verse 17, and goes all the, went all the way to la- the end of last week's message, chapter 3, verse 8. Starting with verse 17, Paul moves in a wide-ranging critique of the human race. From critical moralizers in general, whether Jews or Gentiles, to Jewish people in particular in their self-confidence. And as he begins the third chapter, we saw how Paul's teaching seemed to call into question God's covenant promises and His character. And it prompted some really important but distinct questions since Paul's teaching seemed to undermine God's covenant, the people asked, what advantage then is there to being a Jew? Is there any at all? And what did Paul respond? Much. Much. 
Because they were the nation that was chosen and given the very, and he calls them oracles, the very words of God, the scriptures, the Old Testament. But the being chosen did not bring about privilege. And that's what they fell back on. Oh, I, I'm, I, got to, I got to be chosen to do this. I'm special. No. It was, I have been chosen, so I've got a very important responsibility. And all through the Old Testament, it says they were to be the light to the nations. But what did they do? They brought it all back to themselves. We're chosen. We're the holy people. You all are the lost. Second, Paul's teaching seemed to nullify God's faithfulness. They questioned it if their lack of faith would somehow nullify God's faithfulness. And Paul's answer was not so much not at all or no, by no means or certainly not or God forbid even. It was very emphatic. Not on your life. Not in a thousand years. There's no way that God is going to be unfaithful. And He hasn't. He hasn't been unfaithful to the covenant promises He made with Israel. Don't be duped by those people who are proclaiming that the nation of Israel is somehow going to be restored before Christ can come back. That's not biblical. Christ can come today. He can come before this service is over. The apostles thought that on the Mount of Ascension. They said, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore Israel? They didn't understand. They were so focused on the material, the present. And God was faithful to His covenant in that Jesus became Israel, the representative, and brought all of those promises to us. By our loyalty to Him. And that just moved on to the question of whether or not what Paul was teaching impugned God's just, justice. You know, if, if they are chosen, if they have a special privilege, but yet they're going to be lost, doesn't that mean that God's not just? I shared with you last week, very honestly, I cannot accept as biblical the teaching that God has already chosen who is going to be saved and who is going to be lost. A teaching known as predestination. God predestined the way. He predestined that those who were loyal and those who were faithful would be adopted as His sons. But it wasn't done on an individual basis. It was done on a corporate basis. How just would God be if He decided before time ever began that I'm going to create this person but he's going to be lost for eternity. And so they questioned also whether 
Paul's teaching was actually falsely promoting God's glory in some way. And we noted in the passage, verses 1 to 8, that Paul wasn't content though only to proclaim and expound the gospel. He also argued its truthfulness and its reasonableness. And, and I shared with you, that's why it's so important for us. So important. So important that we take the time to have face-to-face encounters. And we work diligently to keep our mouths closed so that we can have our ears open. Not thinking ahead of time, well, how am I going to respond to what that person just said? No, hearing them out, repeating what they said. Did I really hear you rightly say this before we answer? Because a lot of times we miss what the person is even saying because we're so already in motion in terms of how we're going to respond and what we might think about this or that or what. We need to be listening carefully, responding with seriousness and proclaiming the gospel in such a way as to affirm God's goodness and further His glory. So now, as Paul is approaching the end of this lengthy argument that began back in chapter 1, verse 18, he starts thinking about, okay, how am I going to sum this up? How am I going to wrap it up? How am I going to move on? And so in chapter 3, verse 9, he asks, what then? Or as the NIV renders it, what are we going to conclude for this? So let's see. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since the law comes. So since through the law comes knowledge of sin. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. I want you to notice something with me. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he said, then what advantage has the Jew? And he answered, much in every way. We just read in verse 9, he said, what then? Are the Jews better off? And he replies, no, not at all. Seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? certainly sounds like one. 
Is there any advantage? Much in every way. Are they any better off? No, not at all. So here's the image that I want you to put before us today. Because we need to decide how these things add up. We need to calculate, so to speak. Not just what Paul has said already, but also how these quotations from the Old Testament help clarify things. I purposefully did the slides the way I did because I wanted to separate each one of the Old Testament passages that he quoted, one right after the other. Now, let me once again affirm that Paul was not sitting there with his Old Testament open saying, oh yeah, I'll include that verse. Oh, there's a good one. I'll include that. Why wasn't he doing that? He didn't have it. Why wouldn't he have had it? Because it was written on what? Scrolls. So, Samuel, which originally was one book, not 1st and 2nd Samuel. We, Jim talked about this this week. It was first, became 1st and 2nd Samuel because it, it took two scrolls to get all of it written. It was really only one book. But it took two scrolls, so it became 1st and 2nd Samuel. 1st and 2nd Chronicles, same way. And Paul didn't have all those big scrolls, especially not when he was in some of the places that he was in, in, in jail when he was writing in prison. So where does he come up with these verses that he has just quoted one right after the other? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and memorization. 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 I know, and I heard another one this week with Jim, but I know of two different instances where when the Bible was taken away from people, the Christians came together and out of what they had memorized as a group, they were able to bring predominantly the whole New Testament back into their place. Hanoi Hilton, toilet paper. Okay. They didn't have to they didn't have to go back and open a scroll. Paul certainly didn't have to because as a student of Gamaliel, studying to be a rabbi, to have been accepted by Gamaliel as a student rab under him as the rabbi, Paul would have had to have had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized. All five books. And don't tell me we can't do it. Because I can tell you the story that Lucy Swindoll, Chuck's Swindoll's sister Lucy shared about how her mom, who was in her 80s at the time, invited her over for something special on her birthday. She thought it was the meal her mom 
made. And so after the meal, she got up and started to help clean up the leave. And her mom said, no, no, sit down. I want to give you what I have as a special for you. And when Lucy sat down, she said her mom began with 1 Peter 1.1 and quoted the book of 1 Peter to her. In her early 80s, she had memorized Paul's letter to Peter. So Paul gives these passages that come to his mind. And the only way that we can resolve the discrepancy is by clarifying what benefit or what advantage he has in mind. If it means privilege and responsibility, then the Jews have much because God had entrusted His people with His Word. But if it meant favoritism, then the Jews had none. Because God will not exempt them, nor any of us, from judgment. What we just read is a series of seven Old Testament quotations. The first probably from Ecclesiastes, five from the Psalms, one from Isaiah, all of which bear witness in different ways to human unrighteousness. And Paul's actually, once again, following his early training uh, as a rabbinical student because that was a common rabbinical practice of stringing passages together like that to illustrate a point. So, as we add it all up, as we look at those seven passages together, I think the first thing that's supported by those Old Testament fat passages is the fact of the universality of the bondage of sin and guilt. This is done in both a negative and a positive manner. Negatively, we're reminded in verse 10, none is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Verse 11, there is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 12, part B. Nobody, that includes me, nobody's righteous. Positively, verse 12, he turns it around and says that all have turned or all have swerved aside. All alike have become worthless or debased. And I think what Paul is doing is he uses a variety of passages to use repetition. Remember, I've said to you many times, what you hear once is, is important, but if it gets repeated, it's even more important. If it gets said a third time, you better take notice. And so, twice we're told that all have gone their way. Four times we're told that no one is righteous. Twice we're told not even one person is an exception. And Paul's point is that to be righteous is to live in conformity to God's law. A man by the name of Edersheim put it this way in a book that he did called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. The best man, the noblest, the most learned, the most philanthropic, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, say what you like, 
There has never been a man who can stand up to the test of the law. Drop your plumb line and he is not true to it. We are all sinners. And that's the place that we need to start. We have to start with a recognition that I am a sinner who is no better off than anyone else apart from what Christ has and what He will do for me. The condition is universal. And that still means that it affects me each and every day. I'd like to think otherwise, but I promise you, before I go to bed tonight, I will have done something wrong, either by actually doing it or by not doing something that I know I should have done. We're all sinners. Which brings me to my second point. And I think that we need to recognize from these verses again the ungodliness of sin. I've shared with some of you before the importance of what comes at the beginning and the, and the end of a list, how important that is. Notice with me again, near the beginning of the list comes the statement, in verse 11, no one seeks for God. And then at the end, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul could have arranged those Old Testament passages in any way that he wanted to do. But I believe he chose to begin and end in this manner because he's giving us more than just an assertion that when people renounce God, they tend to plunge recklessly into evil. Whereas when they fear God, they shun evil. Now, I think that to be consistent with other passages from Paul's writing, it's that these particular passages were chosen to identify the essence of sin as ungodliness. Compare this with what Paul said at the very beginning of this lengthy section. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's complaint is that we really don't seek Him. We don't make His glory our supreme concern. And the reality is, is that we've really not set Him before us. And there's no room for Him in our thoughts and we don't love Him with all of our mind, soul, heart, and powers. Paul very well could have had Psalm 54.3 in mind, which says, Ruthless men do not seek God themselves. Or Psalm 10 verse 4, In the pride of his face the wicked does not seek Him. All his thoughts are, There is no God. Jim went into some detail on C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a proud atheist. 
promoted his atheism. Until one day, some very earnest Christians started questioning him about different things. And he began to realize that there were cracks in what he believed. Flaws. And interestingly, the person that C.S. Lewis even credits with bringing about the change in his life was another novelist by the name of Tolkien, writer of the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings. And C.S. Lewis said, it wasn't that I really didn't know that there was a God. It was that I didn't want there to be a God. Because if there was a God, He had a rightful claim on telling me what I could and couldn't do to be happy. You see, here's the problem. You've probably seen this before. I saw it and I liked it. I didn't create it. Right there at the center of the word sin, what's there? I. Sin is the revolt of the self against God. It's the placing of ourselves on the throne so that our focus is on me, myself, and I. And we dethrone God. Ultimately, sin is worshiping our wants and our desires. Self-deification. The reckless determination to occupy the throne that belongs to God. And that's why over and over and over and over in the Bible, you hear about the problems caused by idolatry. So finally, thirdly, this catena of Old Testament passages should teach us the pervasiveness of sin. I hope you realize by now that sin affects every part of the human constitution. Every faculty, every function. Our mind, our emotions, our sexuality, our conscience, our will. And in verses 13 to 17, there is a deliberate listing of different body parts. Their throats are open graves, full of corruption and infection. Their tongues practice deceit, instead of being dedicated to the truth. Their lips spread poison like snakes. Their mouths are filled with bitter curses. Their feet are swift in the pursuit of violence, and scatter ruin and misery in their path, instead of walking in the way of peace. And their eyes are looking in the wrong direction. They don't have reverence for God. These bodily limbs and organs were created and given to us so that through them we could serve people and glorify God. But instead, we use them to harm. We use them in rebellion against God. And so Paul has shown how some people sometimes are able by nature to obey the law. Chapter 2, verse 14, 27. But the totality of our corruption, the pervasiveness of our sinfulness, refers to its extent. The twisting and the tainting of every part of our humanness 
um, as well as the fact that it reaches all of us. So here's my challenge in closing. Isn't it time for us to accept the diagnosis that we are in fact all sinners and therefore no better than anyone else? Again, if you don't have anything good to say, keep your mouth shut. The worst thing we can do is be critical, point our little fingers, raise our snooty noses, and say, look at what that person's doing. Look at this. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. We have no right, nor do we have any business standing in judgmental condemnation of anyone. And when we truly understand our condition, that we are terminal apart from Jesus Christ, when we truly understand that, maybe we'll start to speak and put it into practice and put into practice the proper remedy and prescription. Jim said it again this weekend. In terms of the judgment phase, we're guilty. When we stand before the throne, we're going to be guilty. Don't think otherwise. But in the penalty phase, Jesus is going to step up and say, now this is one of the children. I've already paid the penalty. I've already paid the penalty for this one. You see, the only way, the only way that anybody can be saved is through the act of love by Jesus on our behalf. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No person, no man, nobody comes to the Father except by me. Amen. And here's how that hurts. It doesn't hurt me because I know that I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But it hurts me in the sense that I have family members who have said, oh yeah, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And I, I want Him to be my Savior. But they haven't accepted Him as the Lord of their life. And He can't be your Savior if He's not the Lord of your life. Let's pray.